John 7. After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus replied, Now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me, because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I am not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. But after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of the public view. The Jewish leaders tried to keep him, tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some argued, He's a good man. But others said, He's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. Then midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained? They asked. So Jesus told them, My message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want only glory for themselves. But a person who speaks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you are trying to kill me. The crowd replied, You're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus replied, I did one miracle on Sabbath, and you were amazed. But you work on the Sabbath too, when you obey, obey Moses' law of circumcision. Actually, this tradition of circumcision began with the patriarchs long before the time of Moses. For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it so as to not break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? But here he is, speaking in public, and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe that he is the Messiah? But how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true, and you don't know him, but I know him because I come from him, and he sent me to you. Then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on, on him because his time had not yet come. Many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, Would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? When the Pharisees heard that, the crowds were whispering such things 
They and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus told them, I will be with you only a little longer. Then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but not find me. You cannot go where I am going. The Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement. Where is he planning to go? They asked. Is he thinking of leaving the country and going to the Jews in other lands? Maybe he will even teach the Greeks. What does he mean when he says, you will search for me but not find me and you cannot go where I am going? On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For those scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, Surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others said, But he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, Why didn't you bring him in? We have never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. Have you been led astray too? The Pharisees mocked. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing? He asked. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Then the meeting broke up and everybody went home. Oh Lord God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word spoken to us. Lord, we ask that your word would become life to us. God, that we would hear you speaking, guiding, directing us, and that our hearts, our minds, our very lives would be open and receptive to the things that you want to do in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, here in chapter 7, it has been six months since the Passover, six months since the miraculous uh, feeding of bread to, to the 5,000, and it's going to be another six months until Jesus' death. Jesus has been laying low in Galilee because of the, the plot to kill him. And so instead of being in Jerusalem and in Judea, Jesus has, has hidden away up in the north. And now he's finally heading back to Jerusalem for the last of the three great festivals in the Jewish um, calendar. The Festival of Shelters, also known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a, a feast, a festival that celebrated um, in the autumn, after the autumn harvest of the grapes and the, uh, the olives, where people lived in booths or tents in the field as they harvested. 
Um, and this festival would last for seven or eight days. People from all over Israel would flood into Jerusalem. And as they're there in Jerusalem, uh, people would, would put up, would build these, these temporary shelters, these booths um, made out of tree branches. Uh, some of them would be on the rooftops of people's homes, their flat rooftops. Um, they'd be in courtyards, they'd be around the gates, um, outside of the city. People were everywhere. Uh, this was a time where Jerusalem was crowded and packed to the full. And as they were, were sleeping there in their tents and eating meals there in their tents, uh, they were reminded of the time in Israel's history when people lived in tents and booths, shelters like this, as they were wandering through the wilderness and as God sustained and cared for them. And so think of all of the people that were crowding the city, families and friends reunited. Everyone had just taken in their crops. Um, there was an abundance of food and drink. Provision was there for the winter. There was singing and dancing and feasting, thanking God for his provision in the wilderness, as well as his ongoing provision through the harvest that they had just taken in. All of it reminders of God's providence and sustenance. And every morning during this festival, there was a ceremonial procession that would happen going to the spring of Gihon that fed the pool of Siloam. The priests would go down with this golden pitcher and they would fill the pitcher with water from the spring. And then they would process back up to the temple um, with people from the, the city and the surrounding areas following them. And as they made their way back to the temple, they would pour out the water along with um, a bowl of wine onto the altar. And as they pour out the water on the altar, the people would be singing psalms. They would be dancing and celebrating as they waved branches, tree branches in one hand and fruit in the other. As the water was poured out on the altar, they were reminded of God providing water for them in the desert um, through a rock when Moses struck the rock and water flowed. And as they poured out this water, they would be looking forward to the promise that God would one day provide life giving water to all of the world that would flow freely from the temple of God. And then in the evening, so the morning was this water ceremony. In the evenings, um, there was a lighting ceremony and the people would gather together once again in the, the court um, of the temple. And there would be these four giant menorahs, 75 feet tall, um, that the, the priest um, would take part in, in lighting these four giant torches in the sky, these four giant candelabras um, that would be burning all through the night and they would give light to the entire city. And as this was going on, people were partying and celebrating throughout the night. And this pillar, these pillars, um, these menorahs lighting up the city would again, it would remind them of the pillar of fire that guided them through the desert in their wilderness uh, journeying. And next, in, the, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at John chapter 8, 
where Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. And he's doing this in the very shadow of these giant lights that are lighting up the city. So morning, we have the water ceremony. Evening, we have um, the lighting ceremony. And then on the final day of this feast, the final day of this celebration, um, the water ceremony was even grander and more joyous as the people paraded around with the priests seven times instead of the usual one. And the um, historians at the time wrote that he who has not seen the rejoicing of the place of water drawing has never seen rejoicing in his life. People are singing loudly, celebrating and waving their tree branches, shouting, Hosanna, God save us. As the priests poured out the living water on the altar, this living water coming from a spring. And the priests would pray for two things as they were pouring out this water. They would pray for God to send rain in Israel because they were now in the season at the end of harvest um, where rain was not falling and there was always um, the, the fear of drought. And so the hillsides were brown at this time. Um, well levels might be running low. Cisterns had, had run dry. And so the people were praying to God that he would provide rain so that the people could drink and there could be another harvest in the coming year. And so they'd be praying for rain, but they would also be praying that God would send his Messiah. And it's in this setting, on this final day, the climax of the entire week's celebrations and festivities, um, the, the final day that was called the Great Hosanna because people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. People joyously shouting, God save us. As the water is being poured out um, for the nation, as the nation prayed for rain and a Messiah, Jesus enters on the scene and he speaks of living water. If Isaiah 55, the passage that we read together at the beginning of our worship gathering, um, if, if that passage invites those who are thirsty to come and drink, Jesus is announcing that he is the one who can provide the water that we are thirsty for. Jesus has already claimed in John to be the temple of God, and now he claims to be the very water flowing from the temple, that that water flows from him and is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 14, 8 prophesied about the coming day of the Lord when water would flow from the temple water that would flow in the summer as well as the winter. There would be no stopping this water that God was going to send when he would be king over all the earth. And in Ezekiel chapter 47, Ezekiel sees a vision of water flowing from the temple, just starting out as a trickle, but then getting deeper and deeper and wider to the point that it cannot be crossed because it has become this great river. And trees were growing up alongside the banks of the river. All living creatures are swarming to the water, to its life-giving water. Fishermen will come to the water and there will be fish um, abundantly for them to catch. Life will flourish. Salt water will become fresh. Fruit trees will flourish. The fruit won't fail. 
The leaves won't wither and their fruit will be harvested every month. Fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This is the vision that Jesus is speaking of. The Holy Spirit being given to the world like a river pouring out from the temple of Jesus, bringing life to all it touches, feeding the hungry, giving life to those who come and drink, bringing provision and healing, fullness of life, flourishing of all creation. The life the Spirit will bring will be abundant and overflowing like a river that feeds trees so that they can have a harvest every month for people to eat. This is a vision that's repeated again in Revelation chapter 22 with a river of water of life flowing from the throne of God. And so when Jesus dramatically cries out in a loud voice that he could offer this living water, he was declaring that the long-awaited age had finally come. The time of God's kingdom and reign in the earth was finally here. And that the things that the people were praying for could be found in him, in Jesus. The God who they were celebrating and crying out to was right in front of them. They were praying for rain and for a Messiah, praying for the day that God would give abundant life to the world through his temple. And now the day was here and those prayers were fulfilled in Jesus. This is what he declares when he offers people to come and drink from him. The gift of this river of living water was offered freely to all who thirst. And in response to the world's thirst and need for life, Jesus offers his very spirit given to all who come to him. There's an Aesop's fable of a crow and a pitcher of water. And a crow half dead with thirst comes upon a pitcher which had been full of water. But when the crow put his beak into the mouth of the pitcher, he found that only very little water was left in it and that he couldn't reach down far enough to get to the water. He tried and tried, but at last he had to give up in despair, and then a thought came to him. He took a pebble and dropped it into the pitcher. Then he took another pebble and dropped it, that one into the pitcher. He took another pebble and another and another, and at last he saw the water rise up to the top of the pitcher to where he could finally reach it water that had been just out of reach but now it was there for him to be able to drink this is not the kind of water that jesus offers to those who are thirsty water that's just out of reach but maybe if you try hard enough if you're industrious enough and persistent um, then maybe you can finally get a few life-giving sips God doesn't offer water this way, water in a cup or a cistern or even a well. Instead, he's offering rivers of water, fresh water flowing up from a bubbling spring, fresh, sweet, cold, refreshing water that you don't have to work for, that won't run dry, that you don't need to ration or save for a dry season. Instead, it generously flows abundant and over the top, 
lavish and almost wasteful to those of us who live in a desert area and who are used to have to um, to ration our water and only water our lawns on certain days of the week and not flush the toilet every time we use it with the people who collect bath water to feed their house plants to to us this kind of offer from god seems almost wasteful an overflowing stream of water bubbling up but this is the promise of God to the world, a promise that Jesus offers to all who will come to him in thirst, a lavish amount of water to meet the world's needs. But we see in this chapter that not everyone was thirsty and not everyone was willing to come to Jesus. There are many different people in this chapter with a lot of different reactions recorded and I think that as we look at the different responses of the people in this chapter, that we might be able to see some of our own tendencies reflected in their reactions to Jesus. And so first off, I want to look at some of the, the people in the crowd, the religious leaders um, who were so satisfied with their own understanding of God that they missed out on the water Jesus was offering. And so the religious leaders, um, they were satisfied with the water that they were already drinking because they were content with their own understanding of who God was. They actually missed out on recognizing him when he stood right in front of them. Jesus' Jesus's actions among them couldn't fit into their box, their idea of how God was meant to work in the world. They felt that they already knew how God would act. And they were proud of their understanding. And you can see them as they were mocking the guards and mocking the crowds who were following Jesus. And they let their pride keep them from realizing that what they were holding on to, what they were satisfied with, was really stale water, rationed from a diminishing source, when God actually was wanting to give them fresh living water from a source that would never run dry. They were so confident that they were right in their understanding that their thirst and need for Jesus was masked. How often do we proudly and stubbornly hang on to our preconceptions about God, how he works in the world that we miss out on the opportunity to embrace him and what he is doing? Do we have room in our lives to allow God to reveal himself to us in new ways that might challenge us, cause us to admit our need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, to be discipled in our thinking and our worldview? There were still others who were afraid to admit their thirst for Jesus. There were many in the crowd who were afraid of the religious leaders, and so they were tentatively asking questions and having discussions in private, um, but fear kept them from admitting just how thirsty they were for all that Jesus was offering them. Fear kept them from embracing Jesus fully and receiving the water they were so desperate for. Some would say their fear was justified because we'll find out in, in later chapters that people were being thrown out of the synagogues for following Jesus. And so their fear kept them from coming to him and having their thirst satisfied. 
Might we find ourselves in the same boat? Do our fears of others perceiving us as weak or not having it all together keep us from admitting our need, our thirst for Jesus? Do those fears keep us from running fully after him? Fear of rejection, fear of the unknown, fear of surrender, fear of obedience to his ways, fear of giving up control, fear of what others will think of us if we surrender fully to Jesus, and if this surrender actually causes our life to have to change? We all have wounds and brokenness, areas we desperately long to find healing and wholeness. We long for a life that is full and has depth and richness to us, to it. We want more than the thin lives that we are living, but are we brave enough to acknowledge our fears and acknowledge, admit our thirst in the face of these fears? Still others in this chapter were distracted from their thirst. Many in the crowd were debating Jesus and each other, distracted by their religious talk, by their intelligent sounding debates, um, debates about scriptural prophecies of the origins of the Messiah, arguments about Jesus' qualifications and his origins. They were having all of this religious talk, but instead of this, this talk and this debate drawing them closer to Jesus and helping them understand him more fully, their debates and God talk only served to distract them from actually embracing Jesus right in front of them. It distracted them from their very thirst. I think often we can get so comfortable with our God talk and Christian activity that we are actually distracted from our own thirst for Jesus. All of the activity and good sounding conversation, the doing and the talking can distract us from the realization that we are in fact thirsty for more of Jesus. Can the activity of Christianity, the busyness of life, or the, even the busyness of doing good things distract us from our thirst and cause us to embrace the trappings of Christianity instead of embracing Christ himself. We can be so busy doing the work of following Jesus without ever stopping to drink from the living water that he's offering us. Some in the crowd were too familiar with Jesus to actually receive the water he offered. The beginning of chapter 7, we see Jesus' brothers People who lived with him, who were closer to him than, than probably just about anyone else, except maybe his disciples. And yet in their familiarity with Jesus, they failed to recognize who he truly was. And besides his brothers, there were those in the crowd who dismissed Jesus out of hand because they thought they knew so much about his origins. Those who said, we know him and we already know what he has to offer. Their over-familiarity meant that they couldn't actually perceive the truth of who was right in front of them. They thought that they knew Jesus so well, but they were actually blinded to the truth of who he was. They said, the Messiah isn't from Galilee. We know this man, we know his family and his origins. And that knowledge, that over-familiarity actually kept them from realizing that he truly was from heaven. What Jesus is offering when he offers living water for all who thirst is intimacy and not just familiarity. It's a closeness that brings life and satisfaction, 
the gift of himself and his spirit, an over-the-top, over-abundant supply of all that God has to offer. And this is in contrast with mere familiarity with God. We can become so familiar with someone without actually ever being in close relationship to them. And our over-familiarity with Jesus can lull us into feeling close without ever actually being close. We can be adjacent to him without drinking deeply from the waters that he wants to offer us. And so have we become so familiar with Jesus that we have ceased coming to him for living water? Have we become satisfied with merely being adjacent to Jesus? And finally, there were those in the crowd who openly thirsted. Those who heard Jesus' offer of living water and declared, surely he is the prophet or the Messiah. Many in this passage believed they realized their thirst and they recognized in Jesus the answer to this thirst. They believed that this offer of living water was just what they had been searching for. And so they came to him and found life. And wherever we identify ourselves in this chapter, whether we identify ourselves as openly thirsting after Jesus, over-familiar, fearful, distracted, already satisfied with what we have, to all of us, Jesus offers the gift of living water, his very spirit within us giving us life. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me Come and drink. Will you hear Jesus' invitation to you today? And will you respond to him by coming and finding that he is life itself? O oh God of living water, we come to you this morning, the one who offers water that quenches our thirst. And we confess to you our pride, our fear, the things that we hold on to are distractions that keep us from fully embracing you. And we, this morning, desire to lay these things down and in their place, pick up your free gift of living water that is the Holy Spirit living within us. And we pray that in you, we would find our thirst quenched. Bless us that we would never be satisfied without you. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the waters of life without price. Amen. And let it be so for our lives.